Uh, We've been working through the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, and have got to the Ten Commandments, perhaps one of the most famous passages uh, in the Bible. And so what what we've done is decided to slow down and take them one by one um, so we can dig into them properly rather than just just rushing through. And today we're thinking about the the Ninth Commandment. Uh, The Ninth Commandment, nearly there. Uh, One more next week. And the ninth, Ninth Commandment says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. But come with me, uh, before we think about that in more depth, to Genesis chapter 3, just page 2 of the Bibles on your laps, page 2 of the church Bibles, Genesis 3. And I want to read another very famous story. It's titled there, The Fall. The setting is paradise. God has made the world. And um, so far, everything is beautiful. Everything is good. But everything's about to go wrong. So Genesis 3, verse 1. Let's hear the, the Spirit's voice. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the, um, sorry, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Uh, in 1914, just after the outbreak of the First World War, a British soldier called Captain Robert Campbell was captured uh, by the Germans and he was put in a, a prisoner of war camp. And whilst he was there, he, he'd get letters. You can write, can't you, to uh, prisoners of war. He got a letter saying that his mother was very ill back home in Gravesend in Kent and she was dying. And so Campbell, Captain Campbell wrote to the Kaiser the German emperor, and explain the situation. My mother's dying. Please, can I go back home and visit her one last time, see her before she dies? And amazingly, the Kaiser said yes, on the condition that you give me your word that you'll return. So Captain Robert Campbell gave his word that he would return, was let out of the prison of war camp, travelled all the way back um, to, to Britain, went to Kent, sat with his mother, uh, as she died, then travelled back across and handed himself back in at the prisoner of war camp. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? I don't know which part of it is most amazing. Uh, the fact that the Kaiser was willing to let him go or the fact that he came back. But, but both speak to a, a society, whatever its clear other faults, a, a society that valued truth and honesty. Arguably, a society that valued truth and honesty far more than, than ours does. Can, can you imagine that happening nowadays? It's almost inconceivable, isn't it? If I was asked to ask you this morning, do, do, you know, do you value truth and honesty? I'm almost certain, I don't know all of you by any means, but I'm almost certain everyone in the room would say, yes, of course. It is a rare person who says, do you know what I really value? Lies and dishonesty. Okay, no, no, no one says that. But if we're honest with ourselves... We know we're not quite as honest as we should be, all of us. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, religious or not, we all know we're not as we should be. Um, you see that really obviously in the gap between how we present ourselves to the world and how we actually are. You know there's a gap, don't you, between the picture you paint of yourself and the reality. You know there are things about you that you cover up and conceal. Uh, you might have heard of um, uh, the story of Thomas, uh, sorry, not Thomas, Oliver Cromwell, two different Cromwells, Oliver Cromwell, um, the, the protector uh, during the, the civil wars. They killed the king. Oliver Cromwell becomes, um, well, depending on your take, essentially dictator uh, of England. Uh, and uh, he gets this guy called Samuel Cooper to come and paint a picture of him. Now, Cooper has already painted a picture of him beforehand and, and made Cromwell look like pretty noble, pretty beautiful, um, sort of perfect skin and all the rest of it. But Cromwell, in reality, had a massive wart um, on, it, on his head. 
And this time, with Cromwell sort of having commissioned the painting, he got Cooper in and said, I want you to paint me warts and all. Have you heard that phrase, warts and all? It comes from that. Paint me as I actually am. Uh, I read an interview with a, a director of a gallery um, that is displaying this painting, or was displaying this painting until recently, uh, who said this, it's the best painted wart in English art, if not the only painted wart in English art. When you see it close up in high definition, the top's all white and flaky, absolutely repulsive. Uh, there is a man who wasn't trying to cover up. Cromwell, I mean. You know, in many ways, it's that, that whole kind of... And that whole situation is a mirror of our social media age, isn't it? Okay, we, we airbrush our photos. We can put even on, you know, even on rubbish cameras nowadays on your phones. Uh, you can put all these filters on to kind of make you look a little bit more beautiful or, or sort of hide the scarring or whatever it may be. Um, Cromwell understood that the reality was different, that he wasn't an airbrushed man. But, but we do, don't we? We airbrush ourselves. I remember a friend a while back um, telling me he was, he'd been on holiday with his, uh, his teenage daughter and one of her friends, and, and the, the, the girls had met um, some teenage lads during the day and, you know, had fun, whatever, had a good time. And then later that evening, um, the dad was saying they were out eating, and, um, and he saw these two boys on another table, and he said to, 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 to his daughter, oh, hey, you should go, go and say hello. And the girls were horrified and were sort of covering their head. And I thought, what's the matter? You got on really well, don't you? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, but we haven't got our makeup on now. He said, doesn't matter. You look fine, go on, go. No, 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 no. We, we can't go to them until we put our makeup on. We want them to see, see us as we really are. Isn't that interesting? We want them to see us as we really are, i.e. with makeup. I don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with makeup. There's nothing wrong with covering up warts. There's nothing. But it's just, again, it's just a sort of an interesting phrase, isn't it? As we really are, once we've done ourselves up, once we've sort of put on the mask. There is a gap between how we present ourselves to the world and how we actually are. And deep down, we're terrified that someone will pierce the defences, see the truth, see the warts and all. And one of the ways... We, we defend ourselves from that happening, from really being known or really just being able to be relaxed and, and truly be ourselves is through our words. Uh, our words are like a mask. They're like makeup, if you like. We use them to airbrush our image. Um, some, some of the ways we do that is obvious. How uh, We boast, we exaggerate our achievements on our CV or in an interview, or just telling stories about what happened at work when we're kind of the hero and everyone else is the villain. We just flat out lie. Why are you late? Oh, traffic. We don't want to be thought of as a lazy person who left too late or a disorganised person who got lost, so we just, little lie slips out as a traffic, puncture, whatever it might be. But equally, our fear of being kind of seen as we really are can, can lead us not to, to lie and use our tongues to kind of create this false image, but can also lead us, other people to, to just not speak at all. Um, the person who's, who's too terrified to ever say anything in a meeting in case they give the wrong answer. Or perhaps a Bible study. You know, what if I say something and it's, it's not right? I'll be so embarrassed, so ashamed. Uh, a prayer meeting. What if I say a prayer and it's not right? Whatever on earth that would mean. And so they go quiet. The person who can't go to social events because they're terrified of what people think or, or 
We all have this gap between reality, how we know ourselves to be, and how we present ourselves. And that has a lot to do with this ninth commandment. And what I want to think about this morning, just for the rest of our time, is how can we, how can we actually close that gap? Or not so much close the gap as accept the gap. Okay, there is a difference. There is, a, there is an underlying reality to ourselves we know is not as it should be. But it is possible to know that and still be at peace. And therefore not have to lie and use our words to distort the truth. Two things, very simply. First thing is we've got to learn to listen before we speak. We've got to learn to listen before we speak. Now, I don't mean that in the way that your mum tells you or your primary school teacher. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so do twice as much listening and half as much talking. That might be really good advice, um, but that's not what I mean this morning. Uh, I read from Genesis 3, which takes us right back to the beginning of the Bible and the story of creation. Now, for now, particularly if you're new to Christianity, um, if I can just ask you to kind of park all the questions about science and all the rest of it, um, I know there are big questions there. I just haven't got time to address them um, this morning. But we're in a world that, that is perfect, that is not as our world is now, a world that is without any anger, any bitterness, a world without any lying, without death, without suffering, a world as God intended it to be. The world that you get snapshots of, of every now and again. Perhaps you've been to you know, the beautiful... Uh, the beautiful sort of countryside just north of Leeds up into the, the moors or whatever or up to the lakes or wherever it may be and you've just got a little sight of real beauty. That is the kind of world that God made. And the people in it are equally beautiful. We're not given a physical description of them so I, I don't know what they look like. I imagine they were good looking but who knows. But rather they are, if you like, internally beautiful. There is no gap. Um, there's no pretense. They don't sin, to use the Bible's language. They do nothing wrong. God has made them without fault. And so we meet Adam, the first man. In fact, Adam is just the Hebrew word for man. Man, Adam. And he's living in this perfect world. But what is this world he's living in made of? Or we say, look, we're scientific. We we know the answer to this one. Uh, It's made of, of elements. Children, perhaps you learn about the periodic table at school. There's some elements that make up uh, creation. And so actually we can go deeper than that. We can, we can look at molecules. And it's actually we can go deeper again. We can look at atoms. And then some very clever scientists say, oh, we can go deeper, deeper than atoms and see protons and neutrons. And we can split those. I think they're called quarks. Is that right? After that, I'm out. Uh, I did history for my degree, not anything kind of science. Um, but we dig and dig and dig. But at some point, you've got to ask the question, well, what are they made of? What's that made of? What's that made of? You can keep splitting things in half for as long as you like, but at some point, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, is things are made of words. The Bible tells us things are made of words. If we'd read Genesis 1, we'd read about God in the beginning, but no creation, nothing that exists. And then God speaks and stuff comes to be. The world is made of words. Now, ultimately, that just means it all relies on God. Okay, it is picture language. I know that. Okay, I don't think we should actually imagine that um, there was a booming voice or something, that there'd be a son and there was a son. It's, it's picture language in that sense. God doesn't have vocal cords, for example. But the point is, it all relies on and comes from God. And therefore, it speaks a message. In the same way as if you, 
If you write a story, it tells the, the reader something about you. If you paint a picture, it reveals something about you. Well, so to creation, Adam and Eve were meant to look around and say, huh, uh, look at the, the might and the majesty of that oak tree. That has come from and has been sustained by a God who must be even more majestic and mighty. They're meant to see the, the intricate beauty in the petals of a rose and say, there is a God who must be full of beauty and imagination. Ultimately, they're meant to look around and think, this is a good God. They're meant to hear the message of creation. A bit later in the Bible, we read Psalms that tell us that, that the heavens, that creation declares the glory of God. The world speaks. And Adam and Eve were meant to listen and hear and think, yes, God is good. God is to be trusted. This is a good life and a good God. But there's an enemy. Uh, verse 3, the serpent, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent slithers in. The serpent is a, a figure here for, for Satan. And he comes in lying. Lying subtly, did God really say you can't eat any tree in the garden? Now, God hadn't said that at all. But the, but the serpent is trying to chip away and give the impression that God actually is, well, God actually is, is against Adam and Eve. God is, God is not good and generous. God is tight. God is going to ruin things for you, Adam and Eve. Life could be so much better if you just turn away from him. He's given you rules. He's put things off limit. Now, Satan exaggerates. He hasn't. Eve corrects him and says, no, no, it's just one tree that's off limit. And Satan goes, oh, yeah, 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 the best tree. Hmm. I bet he told you not to eat that one. Of course he did. Well, you, you keep obeying him, Eve, if you want. You, you, you stay away from that fruit. Because, of course, if you took it, life would get so much better. But I suppose God doesn't want that for you, does he? But the lie that, that Satan tries to slip in to this world that's meant to be speaking of God's goodness is ignore God, turn away from him, and things will get much, much better. If you eat of it, you'll become like him. You'll become wise, says Satan. In other words, you get, you get kind of a promotion. Everything will be better if you just turn away from God. And so they do, Adam and Eve do. And what's the result? They know straight away they've done wrong. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Straight away, this gap comes into being. Beforehand, Adam and Eve were at peace with God, with the world and with themselves. The nakedness is symbolic in that sense. They're just happy. Nothing to, nothing to cover up, as it were, literally. But now they feel shame. And they start hiding, both from God, right away into the bushes, but from one another. That their sin, their turning away from God, means actually there's a gap between them, even just these, there are only two people in the world, and they've already fallen out. They're already hiding from one another. They can't be honest anymore. They sense, rightly, they sense, that they're no longer the people they should have been, and so they have to cover up. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. Genesis 3 is a psychological masterpiece, if nothing else. We've been doing the same thing ever since. Our lies, remember this morning, the commandment, don't bear false witness, essentially about bending the truth or breaking the truth. Our lies are fig leaves, aren't they? They're the ways we cover up. 
We exaggerate to make ourselves look better than we are. We lie to excuse our sin. They're all masks, makeup, to stop people seeing what we're really like. In that sense, they're distortions of reality. Remember, the whole world is made of words. God is sustaining us by his word, minute by minute. He knows the truth. But we don't like the truth. You can't handle the truth. And so we cover it up. We distort his story. It's like getting hold of a Shakespeare play and try to edit it, change it. Uh, we take the building blocks of, of reality, God's words, the truth, in other words, and try and change it. But how does God respond? God responds with two words, fundamentally, two things he says. The first is he comes in judgment. Yes, what you have done is wrong. We're not going to look, pick through all the details now. But, but all the way uh, from verse 13 through to 19, God comes and, and because of what the serpent, Eve and Adam have done, each are punished in, in various ways. This turning from God is it's not just damaging to ourselves, although it is that. It is an offence against God. And so he justly punishes. In other words, he doesn't say, ah, it's only a fruit, never mind. It's only a little bit of disobeying, don't worry. He knows that this is treason. He knows that this is a distorting of reality. But that's not all he says. If the whole story stopped at the end of verse 19, we might think, well, that's that. You've got a God who is good and holy and pure. You've got these two humans who had been given everything, had heard this story about how wonderful everything was, and then they rebel against it, they ruin it, and he has come and basically punished them. But the story doesn't stop there. Verse 21, it's just a little detail, but it's so important. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember their nakedness? They put on these little loincloths sewn out of fig leaves. God doesn't deny that they now have shame that needs covering. But instead of them having to cover it themselves with their little homemade skirts, he clothes them. He gives them garments. And notice we're told they're garments of skins. I think that's significant. Something, some animal, something has died in order that their guilt, their shame might be covered over. Now we're only on page three of my Bible at least. But already it's a picture of what God is going to do. Uh, one day, thousands of years later, one day he himself would come to earth. Jesus, the son of God, would come to earth and he would give his life. He would die in order that we might be clothed in what the Bible calls his righteousness. In other words, his perfect life. He comes as a man and lives a perfect life. His life record means that he should feel no shame. Indeed, he felt no shame. He had nothing to be embarrassed about. He's the only person who needed no mask. He was honest all the time. He told the truth, even if it was going to be to his own harm. He never lied. He never covered up sin because he never sinned. He was the only perfect human being to ever live. And yet he goes to the cross. He puts himself under the judgment that we deserve, the judgment described in, in chapter 3. Why? So that we can be forgiven. The punishment falls on him. 
in order that it might not fall on us. And therefore, his perfect life record that was rightly his can be transferred to us. It's a great swap. There was a guy called Jack Miller, American, he's died now. Um, he used to say, you can, you can understand Christianity, particularly if you're new to Christianity, or, or maybe just need refreshing. You can understand Christianity in, in two phrases, two cheer-ups. The first is, cheer up, you're far worse than you ever imagined. Cheer up, you're far worse than you ever imagined. That is true. Um, perhaps you are a Christian, you've been a Christian a while, and as you've gone on, you, you've suddenly realised, oh, my life, I thought I was going to be getting holier. I thought as I went on as a Christian, I'd be getting better and better and great. And, and, and actually, you realise, you know, my motives are far more corrupt than I ever thought. I didn't think I used to have a problem with pride, but I didn't think I used to have a problem with patience. Then I had kids. <laughs> and it suddenly was revealed that I already had, oh, definitely had a problem with patience. You are much worse than you ever imagined. But why do you say cheer up? You're far worse than you ever imagined. Surely it's sort of depressing. Well, no, God already knows that. And still came to rescue you. And so the, the more about yourself you see that you don't like, that you rightly don't like, it doesn't need to lead to despair. We don't need to hide it. Particularly because of the second cheer up. Cheer up, you're far worse than you ever imagined. Cheer up, you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. Cheer up, you're far worse than you ever imagined. Cheer up, you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. God's love is not for those who are perfect, for those who have no gap. It's not for the airbrushed, but for the warts and all. He knows what you're like. He knows what I'm like. He knows we're not full of love for others. He knows we're not full of love for him. He knows we bend the truth, to put it mildly. He loves the warty you. So much so that he was willing to die for you in order that you might be forgiven. And so you're safe. There's no need to lie, no need to defend, no need to put on an image, no need to put on a front. You are safe if you go to him. In fact, the only way you're not safe is if you continue to lie about the warts underneath the airbrushing. One of Jesus' disciples, called John, uh, wrote a letter. And in it, he says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, so if you say there's nothing wrong with you, no warts on me, what are you deceiving yourself? And the truth is not in us. But actually, he goes even further. He doesn't just say that we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, rather, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. If we pretend there are no warts, we're saying to God, you're lying. Your words, they're not true. The story you're telling us is not true. But, says John, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. He will forgive. Perhaps it's literally the first time anyone's ever sort of told you, never heard anything about Jesus. First time you ever thought about these things. Christianity is not about you working hard to be the person you ought to be or self-realization or whatever. Christianity is all about the fact, the gospel, the good news is all about the fact there is a gap and God loves you despite the fact. So much that he sends his son to die in order that you might be forgiven. And therefore you can be at peace, you can relax. It is a free gift. 
God went through all that for you. And even now, if you're a Christian, you've come and accepted that free gift. You've come to him and said, yeah, forgive me. There will still be a gap between now and you dying. There will always be a gap between the person you're meant to be and the person you are. But you no longer need to deny the gap and cover it up with lies, falsehoods. So just as we close, that the commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Speak the truth. Speak words of life and blessing. We no longer need to use words as shields, as, we, as we've spoken about already. Lying to cover over what's wrong with us. We can be honest. But we don't need to use them as swords either. See, when I realize that I'm not as I should be, what, one of the ways that I can make myself feel better is by cutting other people down. So I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as them. Again, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Work projects. Why is the project late? Perhaps you're leading the team. Um, basically, it's your fault. But I think it's, to be honest with you, boss, I'm not sure Sandra really gets what we're trying to do here. Not sure she's on board with your vision. We use our words to take other people down. We slander. We lie. We unfairly criticize. All to push other people down in order that we, well, we don't look so bad. I might have a couple of warts, but they got plenty. But again, once you're at peace with God, he's forgiven me, I'm safe. I no longer need to, to pull other people down because my, my safety doesn't rely on being a bit better than other people. My safety, my peace, my security, my hope for the future and eternal life, it's all done, dusted. A gift from Jesus. And so therefore, our words are meant to be like God's own words, like our Heavenly Father's words. True, in other words. And therefore, life-giving. In fact, the, the very word, do not bear false witness, it's actually an answer word, do not answer because all our, we're always the second person to speak. God has spoken the world, spoken your life, spoken your story. And anytime you speak, you're therefore speaking in response. And so the command ultimately is speak in line with it. Don't distort that truth, but speak in line. Answer rightly. Speak as God would have you speak. So yes, don't attack with your words. But actually more than that, use them to, to bless. Encourage other people. In line with the good news of the gospel. One of my friends, I think I might have said this before, one of my friends says, um, everyone in the world, you should imagine everyone in the world walking around with a little sign out the top of their head. Uh, if, they've, if they've never heard about Jesus before, the little sign says, evangelize me, tell me the good news. And if they have, they're Christians already, it says, encourage me. Everyone needs encouraging. But it also means I can correct people, be honest with them, rebuke even if they're wrong. Now, I wouldn't dare do that if my main concern is what people think of me. If I'm driven by what people think, then I'll never dare say anything that might make them a bit cross for me. I wouldn't risk it. But again, if I'm totally at peace with God, then I can lovingly, gently, for their good, even say things that are hard. I can be honest. I can be real. Now, this doesn't mean that I've got to say everything I think. Okay, walk into a room and just start announcing, oh, I see you put on weight. Um, a friend who's a, a, a journalist, a local, kind of local newspaper, and he told me the story that he, um, he was in a court and a guy was on trial for, for various crimes commit, um, relating to drugs. And his defence lawyer said, um, when my client was arrested and taken in by, by Sergeant Jeffries, um, he was searched and no drugs at all were found on him, much to the surprise of Sergeant Jeffries uh, and indeed my client. <laughs> 
Whoops. <laughs> Got a little bit farther. So I'm not, this commandment does not mean we have to say absolutely everything. You know, someone walks in and says, hey, how are you doing this morning? It's okay to say fine. You don't have to say, well, do you know what? I've got a bad knee and I've got, you know. There are social conventions. But the commandment is ultimately about using our tongue to bless other people rather than harm them, to build them up rather than tear them down. And that only comes when we realize that the words God has spoken to me, about me, are so true I can rest my life on them. Yes, I'm far worse than I ever imagined, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. And so in the court of public opinion, who cares? Because in God's court, I am not just acquitted, but I'm welcomed as a daughter, as a son. And therefore I'm free to be like Christ and use my tongue uh, to speak words of life. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we know we are not the men and women we should be. We know there is a huge gap. And so we pray that in your mercy, you would forgive. We thank you that you gave Jesus as the only one who was uh, truly good, that he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And we thank you therefore that we are justified in him. We're declared right with you, not because of anything we've done, but because of him. Uh, and so we pray that uh, you'd make us men and women who, who are able to speak the truth, not to tear others down, but to build them up, not to defend ourselves unnecessarily but to be happy admitting our faults knowing that you the one who really matters have forgiven make us people of the truth we pray in jesus name amen